The Ringer's Charles Holmes and co-host Grace Spellman present the most notorious new podcast in the industry, The Ringer Music Show. Every Tuesday, they'll bring you the latest news, the hottest takes, and the deepest reporting about the wild world of music and the chaotic industry that creates it. Check out The Ringer Music Show exclusively on Spotify. It's the Full Go, presented by FanDuel. The playoff action is heating up, and with FanDuel, you can bet on everything from the NBA Finals MVP to who's going to lift the Stanley Cup. And right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, or SGPs as the kids like to call them, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Chicago everywhere, check it. It's not enough Chicago. We just don't have enough Chicago people. Jason Goff is here. Well, I'm at Full Go. The Full Go Podcast. The Full Go. Bears, Bulls, White Sox, Cubs, and Blackhawks. Our man, Jason Goff. Three times a week with Jason Goff. His mood is elevated. <laughs> he is feeling good. Jason, I'm loving the Full Go. Love the Full Go. The Full Go. The Full Go. Welcome to Full Go with Jason Goff. That is what I'm talking about. Talking about. What up, world? You're listening to The Full Go with Jason Goff, presented by The Ringer, a Spotify original. Yeah. Welcome into episode 941 Full Go Podcast. Good Lord willing, the creek don't rise, Tanny. We'll make that number one day. <laughs> I hope not. That's all. Yeah, maybe either, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, yo, if we, if, if we get to 940 episodes and we still hear some shit went wrong, you know what I'm saying? Or like, some shit went really, really right. Very true. Very true. You know, I can't wait for the day that the, the Chubb Rock is like, it's either me or golf on this platform. And I'm like, hey, Chubb, <laughs> you and Neil and Joni going to have to sit over there for a little bit. You know? <laughs> oh, no, not Chubrock. Usually, I can't make it that long because when we get into the 900s, I would have, by, you know, long left, because you're going to say, what episode is Danny? Is it number 931 or 932? Well, which one is it, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> Danny and Jesse will have had their fill of me asking before every single damn episode, which one is it? And after 939, Danny and Jesse have said, you know what? We've had enough. <laughs> We've been talking about this, and we're out of here. <laughs> but that time, we'll all have, like, summer homes in Malibu and Things will be bubbling up for us the way they're supposed to be. Because, damn it, we're good people and we're decent in what we do. All right? Speaking You're of being right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, 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 actually, I'm none right, to be honest with you. I know y'all <laughs> motherfuckers. I know both of y'all. Oh, man. <laughs> Welcome into the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff. Got the fellas with me, as always. Steve Cerruti is lurking in the shadow somewhere. He, he really, Steve, Steve kind of, you know, 
Steve's like the, the silent partner of the pod now, where he'll just throw some things in the group chat and bounce, and you know, never to be seen again, until he just pops up on you in a random interview on a Tuesday, right? So shout out to Steve Cerruti, and of course, Chris Tannehill and Jesse Lopez uh, controlling things. Man, 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 the Chicago Bulls. You know, so as you're listening to this, we are taping uh, here on a beautiful Thursday evening after the Bulls drop a tough one to the Toronto Raptors. They lose by seven points to a tough, tough team, man. Like, Nick Nurse, say what you want. Nick Nurse is a damn good coach. He's got his leaders in tune with him. They play hard. Fred Van Vliet, and on the night that he gets named to his first All-Star game, goes out there and controls the tempo. Rockford's finest. You talk about come-ups. You talk about glow-ups. That dude was messing around as a G League player. I remember watching Fred at Wichita State and everybody saying what he couldn't do, how tall he was not, and how fast that he wasn't, and all the other things, the tangible things that he couldn't do for you. And all of a sudden, the dude turned that into $80 million worth of paychecks and, of course, his first All-Star birth. So shout-out to him. Rockford is right down the street from Chicago for all the people who are listening who aren't uh, of the Chicagoland area. So it's a dude who uh, a lot of people in this city are familiar with and know and have watched his story. But man, every pod is going to sound the same. And I'm trying to switch it up in wins and in losses. You cannot be giving up 58, 60 points in the paint. You cannot be giving up 22 offensive rebounds. And especially, especially if you're shorthanded, it's all hands on deck defensively and rebounding-wise. And again, it bit the bulls in the ass. The Toronto Raptors aren't a, uh, a more talented team than the bulls. They got a terrific young rookie in Scotty Barnes who, you know, Leonard Hamilton in Florida State has been out here just recruiting like six foot eight, six foot nine, 240 pound condors and throwing them out there on the basketball court. Like they, they just had the fourth pick in the draft a couple of years ago in Patrick Williams, who is a Chicago Bull and out with a broken wrist. And now this year they throw into the league Scotty Barnes, who is just just going to be a damn stud, man. Like, I'm, I'm not going to throw star status on him or superstar status on him, but that, that dude is going to mess around and be like a 20-8 and eight guy for a very, very long time. Like, he's got physical traits and know-how and the pace of his game I love. Uh, there was a few times tonight where he was playing the five position. This dude was playing small forward at, at Florida State. Small forward, power forward, kind of hybrid dude. But he was he was manning up against New- Vooch. And, and shout out to Nikola Vucevic over these last three games. Tonight, 30 points, 18 rebounds. Uh, the game before that, I believe, it was 24 and 13. The game before that was 18 and 10, if I'm not mistaken. He's he's had some physical, productive nights these last few games for the Bulls. There's some issues, and it's not just the defense. It's not just the rebounding. Zach Levine apparently has been battling back spasms, and tonight was the first night that we really could tell that he wasn't himself. You know, coming off the knee injury, I thought he was just rounding back into form, getting his floor game back together. He had a seven assist, seven rebound night, and an eight assist, eight rebound night the night after that. But he hadn't hit that that crazy Zach explosion game, right? He got up to 25, 26 points or something like, uh, I believe, in the last game. But tonight, 15 points, seven assists, and he came down during one segment of the game very early on, and he grabbed his back, and I was like, uh-oh. And Kendall Gill, who played with Larry Johnson, who, whose career got cut short and cut in half in terms of how how viable, uh, just a star entity he was for the Charlotte Hornets. Larry Johnson, for kids who don't know, you know, that, that Knicks tenure, 
That's that was a different dude. Larry Johnson as the Charlotte Hornet was one of the best players in the league at a very, very young age, but back injuries kind of sidelined that. Not saying that's what's happening with Zach, you know, because back spasms are far different from, you know, herniated discs and nerve damage and all the other things that Larry Johnson had going on. But man, you could tell. Zach was uncomfortable all night long. Defensively, he got into a couple of the stances at the end of the game, so you know he was gritting it out. But I've heard ornery Zach before, but tonight it was a different Zach in the postgame. Tanny, if we got that sound, let's go ahead and run it for the people and then talk about it on the other side. And we know your mentality, but you look uncomfortable now. I mean, you look... Yeah, it hurts. That's <laughs> what happens when you play a 42-minute game with back spasms. How do you feel about going tomorrow back-to-back? I'll see how I feel in the morning. You know, this has been a very interesting year for Zach Levine because last year it was all-star game, all-star game, all-star game. The guy wanted to be an all-star. He shot for it. He made it. The team was losing, right? So you then go to the Olympics where you're stomping with the big dogs and you're like, yo, I'm one of these dudes. In fact, Draymond Green and Kevin Durant were, were lobbying for Zach Levine to be on the team. So he was being accredited, acknowledged, and he was on the radar of champions in this league currently, which upped his stock. He goes and plays under Greg Popovich, gets himself a gold medal, uh, was one of the better defenders on the court, actually played his role to a T. I think Zach was one of the three or four best players uh, on that team during this uh, last Olympic run. So then he comes back home. Monster offseason for the Bulls. You get Alonzo Ball. You get Alex Caruso. And most importantly, you get DeMar DeRozan. And the way that Zach Levine has handled this thing from Jump Street is, hey, I want to win. And the best players can come here because I want to play with them so I can win. DeMar DeRozan gets MVP chance in, in, a, in a building that you have been trying to keep full over the last couple of years, doing a lot of losses. And just watching how Zach has kind of navigated these waters, it's been interesting. And, and it's, I think it speaks to his maturity and also speaks to uh, what he has on the horizon. This is a max player, but don't get it twisted. Don't you dare get it twisted. Zach understands his importance to this squad. He understands his importance to DeMar DeRozan. Now, this team, when DeMar DeRozan isn't on the floor, is a whole different team as opposed to when Zach isn't on the floor. It's a better team when DeMar is on the floor. But that doesn't, you know, that's not to give him any short shrift. Like, 15.7 assists is not a Zach Levine night, but they were right there in the end. It'll be interesting to watch as, as Zach gets closer and closer to making decisions in a max contract year, right? like the knee injury, like the thumb injury. Like he's played through three injuries now, including this back spasm injury. Um, and, and, and sitting down, you know, you got people looking at you that are paying you or getting ready to pay you monster money. Like, okay, what's your pain threshold like? What's your pain tolerance like? And Zach Levine has to make the best decisions for Zach Levine. But also, there's the Eastern Conference this year in the year of 2022 where you go on a three or four game losing streak, you're messing around, you're in playing territory. So there's a lot of things at play here. And over this next week or so, it's going to be interesting. Like they got the, the Indiana Pacers next game. Speaking of that tough Pacers game coming up, a special shout out to all of our peeps over at FanDuel. I'm going to throw together a same game parlay. It's an SGP for the kids out there on Friday when the Bulls take on the Pacers that you can all jump on board with me on. And you'll be able to find it on the FanDuel website and app to easily hop on board my same game parlay. I'll be tweeting it out there as well. So make sure you check us out and you want to check out the odds on Friday for Bulls and Pacers. 
You know, you're going to be playing in a back-to-back situation against a tough team who you struggle with, who's trying to figure out which pieces they should ship, right? You got a lot of guys out there trying to prove something. You know, the Kiefer Sykes of the world, and Lance Stevenson is on his fourth 10-day contract. He gets guaranteed the rest of the season. Demontis Sabonis and Miles Turner's name has been out there in the trade talk. So, you know, they're, they're thinking about breaking that thing up. So you got a hungry team that, that wants to stay together, guys who may be playing for other eyes. You're going up against them tomorrow, and it's always been a tough matchup especially a physical matchup on the perimeter against them. So Zach Levine now, you're going to figure out how he feels uh, on the plane ride back, going to figure out how he feels in the morning. But if you're a Bulls fan, this is a this is a crucial little period headed up to the All-Star break here where you've got all these injuries to key players. You know, you've got Derek Jones Jr. out. You've got Lonzo Ball out. You've got Alex Caruso out. And in the time where the Bulls' top two stars in Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan are supposed to be playing their best basketball, one of them is hurt and a little bit more hurt than we thought. Like, Zach coming off of that knee injury, that knee scare, I should say, that's that's serious business. This is a guy who's torn that knee before. And now on top of it, you're, you're off the mend of a thumb. And then you have now to deal with a back issue. Um, this is... um. This team, you know, the resiliency of this team cannot be understated. So when I bang on them for their defensive inadequacies or their defensive deficiencies, it, you know, take it with the, under the guise and under the specter of this is still one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. In fact, going into tonight, they were the number one seed in the East. Now, I believe Miami won tonight, so I think Miami has the tiebreaker as they sit atop the Eastern Conference together. But Bulls fans, as Vooch is playing better, as DeMar DeRozan's steady play uh, continues, you got to look around and understand the landscape here. This team is going to have to not only get healthy while they're playing competition that is trying to knock them off because the Bulls ain't sneaking up on anybody. They're also in a position where they just can't have any long slides where they're losing five out of seven or four out of six or something like that because of how jumbled up the Eastern Conference is. Look what happened to the Brooklyn Nets in this last week and a half. They lost six straight games. And a few of them, the teams they have no business losing to. I don't care if Kevin Durant's not on the court or not. So when you go in any long tailspins in this Eastern Conference, and long meaning a week, you're going to find yourself in that six, seven spot that the Bulls cannot afford to be in. I don't think the Bulls could afford to drop out of that top four, not just from a confidence sake, uh, a confidence aspect, but also from a matchup aspect. You want to have full home court advantage against some of these squads, and especially in the first round. And if you're on the right side of the bracket, you're making sure that the Milwaukee's and the Brooklyn's and the Philadelphia's are taking care of each other. And you only have to face one or two of those teams instead of all three of those teams being on the wrong side of the bracket. So all these things are important as we head up to not only the all-star break, but the trade deadline. Bulls got to shore up this defense. They ha- the, the point of attack has to be shored up. And I keep banging the drum, especially now with Zach having a back injury. Teams are going to be aware of that. And they're going to try to take advantage of their Bulls perimeter defense. And the Bulls perimeter defense is bleeding into what's happening in the lane. The points in the paint that they're giving up have been absolutely crucial in some of these late losses, some of these comeback affairs, even in wins. So they got to shore up that defense on the perimeter. Io DeSumo had a couple of rookie moments tonight that we haven't seen, right? He got trapped on the baseline and had an errant pass, a couple of turnovers down the stretch, but he's been he's been a rock star this year. So a few things happened that we're not used to, right? Zach Levine having an injury that debilitated him en- enough to, to kind of lessen his athleticism. And of course, Io DeSumo making rookie plays because he's a rookie and we, we, we haven't been used to that this year. So the Bulls defense, Zach's back problems, and Iowa having a couple of bumpy moments. I, I, I won't, 
you know, sound the, the you know, the, the, the panic sirens. I won't hit the panic button on this one, but something to keep in mind. This Bulls defense is tough right now to watch. And I fear that with Zach's back, if this thing is going to be a lingering issue, that this team is going to have to rely more so on their offense going forward. And let's face it, they might have tapped that reservoir enough because they're hitting 120, 115, 116 points a night and still coming out with mixed results. So it's a, a, a tough night. Uh, if you're a Bulls fan, you might look at it as one of 82, but we learned some things. This this points in the paint issue isn't just a you know a trend or a little bit of a fad. This is this is sustainable now. This is something that teams are trying to do. They are partying in the paint and also got to keep an eye on Zach Levine's back. Sounds like the Bulls are just trying to make it to the All Star break like the rest of us. We'll be back with more of the full goal with Jason Goff after a word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, this is Ozzy Guillen, and you are listening to the full goal with Jason Goff on the Ringer in a Spotify. Bob Kendrick, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, joining us here on the Full Goal Podcast with Jason Goff, brought to you by the Ringer and, of course, Spotify. Bob, I want to say this. Um, Thank you so much. I am honored and it's a privilege to get to talk to somebody who is in charge of uh, one of the more important cultural, uh, culturally significant and impactful, um, not just museums, but landmarks and happenings in this country. Um, you know, black baseball is something that I have been very, very fascinated by in terms of how it charts chronologically the history of this country. Uh, and my buddy Clinton Yates over oh, yeah. at the undefeated. Yeah. And you know, you already no, know. That's my guy. That's <laughs> you my already guy. know. Yeah, it's a good man. And he, I gotta be honest with you, me running into him a few years back kind of reinvigorated my um interest in baseball because of his love and passion for it. Uh and 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 the the importance of people like yourself and the people who keep a a, a privately funded uh museum going. Before we even get into Mini Minoso, uh the the day-to-day. Uh, when it comes to the Negro League Baseball Museum that's located in Kansas City, Missouri. And I, I implore anybody if they are in or around that area and have a chance to stop by, have a chance to donate, have a chance to do anything when it comes to talking about the titans uh, of a game that are easily forgotten because they don't have to be covered uh, until, you know, the last couple of years or so when people have become a little bit more socially aware uh, of of what this country's history has been and what this f- future can be, especially when it comes to sports. Why? Why is the National Le- uh, the Negro League Baseball Museum so important, and why will it remain that way under your watch? Yeah, no, honestly, Jason, I think that the Negro League's Baseball Museum is one of the most important cultural institutions in the world for the work that we're doing to preserve, educate, celebrate, and illuminate a piece, a precious piece, of baseball and Americana that was literally on the verge of extinction. This story was going to die 
when that last Negro leaguer left the face of this earth, if it was not for the work that we've now been doing for the last three plus decades. And uh, as you've already alluded to, this is more than just a baseball story. No, this is one of the most fascinating chapters of American history that virtually no one knew anything about, certainly not how profound this story really is, both on and off the field. And the life lessons that stem from this story, they may be more meaningful today than ever before. And so this the story needed to be saved. It needed to be touted. People needed to know. I remember when I met my dear friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, who, of course, spent many years there in Chicago, uh, his beloved Chicago Cubs, working for the Cubs. And uh, when I first met him in 1993, and I am being introduced to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, this little fledgling museum in 1993. We had a little one-room office at that time. And I asked myself, well, Buck, what motivated you to want to build a Negro Leagues baseball museum? And Jason, his answer was succinct, but oh so poignant. Because he said, so that we would be remembered. We should not forget those, as Buck would say, who built the bridge across the chasm of prejudice. Uh Those who overcame tremendous social adversity to go on to greatness. And in the process, they not only helped change the game, they helped change this country for the better. And really their story had never been given the platform that it deserved to have been given. And then this museum comes along and we've been elevating the awareness of this incredible story of triumph over adversity now for 30, almost 32 years. Uh, And we're excited to do so. But I tell my guests all the time, The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum doesn't need to survive. It has to survive so that we don't lose this. Yeah. You know, it's it's my interaction and my relationship with baseball. And it's it's so crazy because, uh, you know, my parents and I tell the story all the time. My parents are from this country. And for a lot of my friends, their relationship with baseball comes from their direct interaction with a male figure in their life, whether it be their father or their uncles taking them to games or teaching them the game. Well, my father didn't uh, know a whole hell of a lot about baseball as a kid, right? Being from Belize, Central America, it was soccer and other things that he was into. And of course, football and basketball when he came to this country. So I kind of had to kind of weave my way uh, through the baseball weeds on my own. And then all of a sudden, Chicago White Sox put together something in the early 90s where, okay, Frank Thomas and, and, and Wilson Alvarez and Ozzie Guillen and Joey Cora and Jack McDowell, like it was a team that it was easy for me to root for as a kid because it was young and it was up and coming. But I, I then started, because as a kid, I also was doing book reports on the Harlem Renaissance and Marcus Garvey and those time periods where, you know, we don't get a lot of, you know, until recently, you didn't get a whole bunch of uh, you know, African-American studies classes and things of that nature. So when I found out about Jackie, well, not found out, but when I delved into the Jackie Robinson story deeper, I was like, okay, but tell me about Larry Doby. 
right? The, tell me, tell me about the Buck O'Neills of the world, not just Josh Gibson's, right? Not just the Titans, but tell me about the Larry Preston's and people who who came before and and during the times that some of these you know well documented struggles were happening. You mentioned Buck O'Neill immediately. I thought of the fact that that man had to um, speak for those seventeen honorees uh, and and not get his fair uh, or his just due in terms of his relevance in in curating and developing and nurturing baseball and black baseball in this country. And then two months later, he passes away waiting to to be named a Hall of Famer, right? So the legacies and the stories that are told, uh, not only in that museum, but people like yourself, you know, you you guys are the, you guys and girls who who work at the Negro League Baseball Museum are the the, the people who hand down the recipes. And like you said, it has to, it has to continue to exist that way. So kids like myself won't have to go fishing, you know, or have to try to figure out where, where, to, where to get that information. That's exactly what we hope to do. You know, it was one thing for us to build this attraction and to whet people's appetite for this story. And now the mindset has shifted to building a great institution so that people understand everything that stems from this story. Because if, you know, it's so easy, Jason, and I cannot understand this, to, to fall in love with the romantic nature of these courageous athletes who overcame tremendous social adversity to play the game that they love, that sometimes we lose sight that the Negro Leagues were the third largest Black-owned business in this country during that era of American segregation. And so this story is just as much deep-rooted in the importance of economic empowerment This is a story of an unprecedented level of leadership that emerged in the African-American community. And ultimately, this is the story of the social advancement of America as Jackie Robinson is handpicked from the great Kansas City monarchs to break baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier. And Jackie Robinson's breaking of color barrier, we make the bold assertion that it wasn't a part of the civil rights movement, man, it was the beginning of the civil rights movement in this country. So when you weave in all of that alongside some of the most talented black and brown players to ever play this game, you can see why this story is so profound. And, and for years it had toiled in anonymity. And, and so we're thrilled to take the lead in helping people hopefully understand the significance of what the Negro Leagues represented. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned black and brown players because, you know, the the, the Afro-Latino um, influence on baseball cannot be cannot be second-guessed a question. I mean, every every Hall of Fame candidacy, we see three or four guys who look like you and I but speak Spanish, Spanish you know, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, like, and I hate to bring it back to the roots, but, you know, I used to watch National Geographic as a kid and get excited anytime they mentioned Belize. And then when you saw it, it would be light-skinned Spanish people who were you know, at the forefront of what they were, you know, were, were putting off as like, this is what Belize looks like. And I'm like, wait a minute. I look at the mirror every single day and, you know, <laughs> I got family members who can speak Spanish, but they, they look like my black ass out here. So, 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 so it, it's interesting segueing from that to Roberto Clemente. Like the reason why Roberto Clemente is such a special and, and, and empowering figure to me is not only because of what he did as a baseball player and the humanitarian he was, but he also made it very, very clear that he never wanted wanted to be represented as just Latino or as just a black player. He wanted both sides and all sides of what, what 
uh, what his ancestry was to be represented, right? And Minnie, Minnie Minoso, you know, being a Chicago White Sox fan and him and his Hall of Fame candidacy uh, and how important he was to like players like Jose Abreu, players like Eduardo Perez, or generationally, the impact is definitely felt there. And it's not just with players who were barnstorming supposedly in the South. Like it's, it's, a, it's a global impact, like you mentioned. And the interesting thing about it, Jason, baseball is a global game in large part due to the Negro League. They took this game all over the globe. You know, the Negro Leagues would go into Canada and that took that brand of play and introducing professional baseball to Canada. They were the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. And I remind people that it was a touring team of Negro Leaguers that introduced professional baseball to the Japanese going all the way back to 1927. This is years before Babe Ruth and his All-Stars visit Japan. Now, they have been more or less commonly recognized as the ones who took professional baseball to the Japanese, at least the American style of professional baseball to the Japanese. It's not true. It was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants who would go to Japan, play a 24-game exhibition series, they go 23-0-1 on the tour. <laughs> the tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would get invited over. And, and so we, we speak a lot about that bond. Baseball, the Spanish spelling of the word baseball, that cultural bond that was created by this sport. And, and when we went to those Spanish-speaking countries, man, we're treated like heroes. So now we're staying in the finest hotels. We're eating in the finest restaurants that those countries had to offer. And if you could imagine this, you come back home and you're treated like a second-class citizen. Yeah. And, and then that dark-skinned Spanish-speaking athlete, when they came to this country, they couldn't play in the major leagues either. So where did they find sanctuary playing? In the Negro League. But that's the beauty of the Negro Leagues. Man, they didn't care what color you were. All they cared was, can you play? Can you play? All, that was the only barometer. Can you play? If you can play, you can play. It's just as simple as that. One of my favorite Roberto Clemente stories, I know I'm digressing, but no, one, of my favorite, no. one of my favorite Roberto Clemente stories was told to me by Roberto Clemente Jr. And, and he says that his dad idolized the late, great Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin could have been the first to break the color barrier. As a matter of fact, he was the Negro League's owner's choice that if the color barrier was going to be broken, they wanted it to be Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro League. Jason, there was nothing that Monty Irvin could not do. Five-tool guy with movie star good looks, he had superstar written all over him. And uh, Branch Rickey had actually tried to sign Monty Irvin in 1944 before he makes the move to go get uh, Jackie Robinson. Jackie. Yeah. Uh -huh, but the Newark Eagles, Monty starred for the Newark Eagles. And the Newark Eagles owner was a woman by the name of Effa Manley. And to say that Effa Manley couldn't stand Branch Rickey, that might be putting it... <laughs> <laughs> a little understatement. <laughs> That's an understatement. That's too mild. And, and so she fought Ricky off. She fought Ricky off because Ricky was going to come and take Monty Irvin without any compensation. 
Matter of fact, that was Ricky's mindset was that he was going to come into the Negro Leagues and raid it of its talent and not pay for it. Yeah. And so Mrs. Manley. So he was going to, he was pretty much going to be a, a rock and roll record producer back then. Yeah, yeah, basically <laughs> he, was, he was going rogue, man. He was going rogue. And, and he didn't think that the, the Negro Leagues could have a, a leg to stand on to fight it. But Effa Manley was prepared to fight. She was going to litigate. And he really did not need, he didn't need a fight on his hand. And so he backs off of Monty Irvin. And that's when he turns his sight to Jackie Robinson. And, and he took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarch. Yeah, you'll hear people say he signed him away from the Kansas City Monarch. Right. No, he didn't. <laughs> he snatched he, him. He snatched him. It's because the Monarch's owner couldn't fight back. You know why? He was white. The Monarch's owner was a guy named James Leslie Wilkinson, a white man one of the few white owners in the Negro Leagues who made his entire living in black baseball. Now, you can imagine this. If this white man who had made his entire living in black baseball tries to stand up and block what virtually every black person in this country had been waiting on, well, he's damned if he did and damned if he didn't. And so he relented. Publicly, he said the right things. Privately, he's seething. It's not seething because a black man is about to play in the major leagues, but this black man you're going to take away from me you're going to put me out of business. Yeah, it's the box office right That's there. it. That's it. And, and so he sells he sells his team to his business partner, T.Y. Baird, the year after Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. Well, for Roberto Clemente, Monty Irvin, he idolized Monty. And so when Monty was playing in Puerto Rico, Junior says that his father would carry Monty Irvin's uniform to the ballpark. Now, you see, if you carried the player's uniform, they let you into the game for free. There you go. And that it was Monty Irvin that gave his father his first real baseball glove. And that Monty Irvin was his, his father's idol. He patterned his game after the great Monty Irvin. And what it reminds me is the fact that every hero has a hero. And for the great Roberto Clemente, his hero was Monty Irvin. And I can tell you now, man, this stuff here only happens in baseball. This is the romantic nature of baseball. After Roberto Clemente tragically dies in the plane crash there in providing aid over in Nicaragua, they move up his induction into the Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. Who does he go in the Hall of Fame with? Monty Irvin. Yeah. You can't make full this. Full circle. This. Yeah, it, it goes back full circle, man. That that That's baseball. That is the beauty of this game. That's why we romanticize about this sport more than we do in any other. Yeah, man. Hey, this is this is the stuff that uh, people need to hear. <laughs> and, I, and I'm glad you're telling these stories, right? Like, you know, I, I've been on a Zoom before with LaTroy Hawkins and Demetri Young. And, oh, and just, those are my guys. <laughs> yeah, just, just sitting there, you know, when everything was going down a couple of years ago and, and, and the fellas got together on a Zoom and I'm just sitting, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm just sitting in the back like, man, these well, stories both, are outstanding. Both, both are great friends of the Negro League Museum. <laughs> LaTroy, Jock Jones, and Tory Hunter were three of the young stars that started coming to the Negro Leagues Museum every year when they were all three with the Minnesota Twins. They never forgot us. You know, they started coming and they never stopped. And so those three games have a special place in my heart. You know, I see them from time to time. I talk to LaTroy a little bit more regularly than I do with the other guys because LaTroy has connections. Patrick, a kid named Patrick Mahomes here. (laughs) You might have heard that name. Yeah, heard You might have heard that name. Yeah, Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, he, he is Patrick's godfather. 
And, and so uh, we see Pat, we see Latroy on a fairly regular okay. basis. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to shout out to togetherness and community. Yes, yes, right? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm down with it. I'm down with it. Mini Minoso, um, yes, a very important figure. Hell, I didn't know until about I'd say about ten years ago that uh, I. I his daughter, you know, kind of helped raise me down the street from from where I used to live in Evanston, uh, Cecilia. Uh, you know, Mini Minoso is a Sox fan. He represents so many things. I only have one Sox jersey in all of my Sox fandom, and it's number nine. Uh, and and it's a it's an old school Mini Minoso jersey. Um, you know, his, his kindness. You know, even at, at his accelerated age, at the end when he used to come up to the station. His um his personality, and then you really realized the kind of ball player he was. Uh, it was um you know it it took way too long, um and, and especially when you look at where his numbers stack up in terms of Hall of Famers. Like there's some Hall of Famers who he has better numbers than that they didn't have to wait as long as he did. But if you can uh, extol the virtues of one Mini Minoso for our listeners, because I'm sure you could. Sure, you can encapsulate his career and not only his career but his life a lot better than I did a few weeks ago when we talked about him. Plus, he was a dear friend. He was a dear friend. Uh, our conference room is right adjacent to my office, and man, I sat in that conference room with Arrestus Mini Minoso on countless times, talking life, talking baseball. And so, when Buck O'Neill didn't get in the Hall of Fame in 2006, you mentioned this. Uh, he dies a couple of months after going to the hall and speaking on behalf of those 17 others who did get in. Minnie Minoso missed that same year. And for me, it was just incomprehensible that the two guys who were still alive at that time got both left, got left out. Yeah. You know, and, and we lost. It was a historic opportunity when we put 17 in. But man, if we'd have added 19, and the two guys are still alive, can you imagine how historic that celebration would have been? And, and we missed that opportunity. So not only was I heartbroken about my, my man, Buck O'Neill, I was also heartbroken about Minnie Minoso. And, and then now both of them are gone. You know, so it's bittersweet for me that they both go back into the Hall of Fame, will go into the Hall of Fame together after both missing barely in 2006, here we are now, 15 plus years later, almost 16 years later, they are now going into the Hall of Fame together. Minnie Minoso, and you kind of alluded to it, one of the most electrifying baseball players this game has ever seen, who began his career in the Negro Leagues with the New York Cubans. And, and he talked about making the decision to come to the U.S. to play. He turned down more lucrative opportunities to play in other countries because he wanted to come to the U.S. because he thought the Negro Leagues would offer the path to U.S. citizenship and the pursuit of what was held the American dream. And so he comes and starts his career with the New York Cubans, a dynamic leadoff hitter for the New York Cubans. Ben Minoso, five-tool guy. As I remind people, Jason, he put the goal in the go-go White Sox. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, there was no go. Yeah, there was no go in the White Sox until Minnie got there. And, and I mean, he did everything. And he did it with a flair. You yeah, already know. It. Yeah, he did it with <laughs> great flair and style. And uh, for the life of me, I, I don't know why it took so long. 
I really don't. You know, it breaks my heart because I know how badly many wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. And then it happens after he passes away. And, and so I'm in Chicago. I go to Chicago for the late, great Ernie Banks's funeral service. Mm-hmm. That, I believe, was in January of 2015. Minnie Minoso is there. And Minnie is his normal, jovial, jubilant. You know, when Minnie walked in the room, the room lit up. Oh, yeah. And, and did, he have, did he have his fur on? <laughs> <laughs> you already know. <laughs> and so Minnie is there. And I've been doggone about two months later. I get the news that many has passed away. So the city of Chicago lost, I think, is most two iconic baseball figures in a span of about two months. Ernie Banks from the north side. Manny Minoso over on the south side. You know, these players are what Chicago baseball really is all about. They, they kind of symbolize what baseball in Chicago was all about. And we lost them in the same, almost at the same time. It was just heartbreaking for me. But people need to really go back and take a look at Manny's career. Now, perhaps after Major League Baseball made the decision to recognize the Negro Leagues as a major league, which we already knew it to be, but they officially are recognizing the Negro Leagues as a major league and rolling in the statistics of the Negro Leagues into the annals of major league history. Well, that helps a player like Manny Minoso, who are people just looking at numbers. If that's all you're looking at, if you're just looking at numbers, then that certainly helps them. And add a few more home runs, batting average probably went up a little bit, more RBIs, that kind of thing. But people, please understand that Minnie Minoso was the Latino Jackie Robinson. He inspired a legion, not only of Cuban ballplayers, but Spanish-speaking ballplayers around the globe gave them the hope that they could play this game here in this country in the major league. And that to me cannot be understated. Yeah, because that Afro-Latino ball player faced a lot of the same indignities that the American black baseball player faced in this country. You know, I talked to Minnie Minoso and I talked to my dear friend, uh, the great Louis Tiant, whose father, El Tiante Sr., played in the Negro League. And Louis says when he came to this country, he was being called an N-word and he had no idea what no they clue were talking what about. Right. Yeah, they had no idea <laughs> what he was talking about. You know, and, and so they were viewed the same way. Now, that being said, some of the Spanish-speaking players were granted even more liberties than we were. Some of them could go into the restaurant and get food when we couldn't. And, and that's why you did indeed have some Negro League players try to pass themselves off by speaking a broken down Spanish, because it might enable them to get a meal where otherwise they wouldn't be able to get a meal. But by and large, they face the same indignities that American-born Black players faced in this country as well as they were traveling the highways and byways of this country. And many endured that. And he got the opportunity to go to the Cleveland Indians. And man, I don't know what the Indians were thinking about. They never gave many a chance. They didn't give him a chance. I think, well, I do know, it, it was clearly racist, you know, because by then you had Larry Doby had been a part of the team, Satchel Page had been a part of the team, you got Luke Easter there, and, and someone determined, we don't need this many black guys on this team. Uh, yeah, he's like, hey, hey, close the door, fellas. That, that's <laughs> one, that's two, three, how many it, do you it, need? It reminds me <laughs> of a story, Jason, that the great Larry Doby once told. 
And he says that he had tried to get the Cleveland Indians to sign <laughs> Willie Mays, <laughs> Henry Aaron, and Ernie Banks. And that the scouting Decent report, players. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that the scouting report came back and said that Henry Aaron had a hitch in his swing, that Willie Mays couldn't hit the curveball, and that Ernie Banks had no range. And they passed on those three legendary stars. Now, can you imagine? Some scout made the decision that they didn't want that many black players on the team or in the, in the Indian system. Can you imagine if they'd have made the bold move to go get those guys? I can tell you now, with little doubt, the pendulum of power would have shifted from the Yankees to the Cleveland Indians because the Indians had a great pitching staff. And you bring that kind of star power into that, that lineup, we would be talking about the Cleveland Indians like we talk about the New York Yankees of yesteryear. Cleveland won the World Series in 1948, led by Larry Doby and a, and a 42-year-old, maybe 52-year-old Satchel Page. <laughs> and, and my Cleveland baseball fans get tired of hearing me say this, they ain't won a World Series since then. <laughs> and they don't deserve to. And they don't deserve to. And so Minnie never got a fair shake. And fortunately, they traded him to the Chicago White Sox. And when the White Sox put him in the lineup, he took off. He took off. And man, he was, he was thrilling fans from that day for almost four or five decades. However long it was that Minnie played, man. And I think maybe because he played so long, that rub some of the, the guys, the sports writers, the wrong way. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I think they thought he was trying to make a mind. The man just loved the game. You know, so you shouldn't be indicted for having a passion for the game. Play the game as long as you can possibly play it. Word to Julio Franco. And, and a word to Tom Brady. Nobody's been how long Tom Brady's playing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that'll be the first and last time that Minnie Minoso and Tom Brady oh, are mentioned in the same sentence. <laughs> hey, Bob, I, I, I got to run, but I, I definitely I need you back on. Uh, we need to we we need to make people even more aware of the treasure that is in Kansas City, Missouri. And I need to know more about you, the dude, because this is uh this has been one of my favorite sit downs. I've been doing this for you know twenty years, and I can always appreciate when I learn something and I want to come back for more. Anytime, I'll get to my question. You know, the burning question that I have, which is um, if you if you agree with me that Babe Ruth was a brother, because you know, I, you know, I got, I got some conspiracy theories. You know, or orphan. You know what I'm saying? You know that face. You know what I mean? I don't know if you remember the Tom Joyner, the Tom Joyner, yeah, Tom TV Joyner morning show. show. He had oh, the morning okay, show, show, but he also had a TV show. And Jay Anthony Brown comes to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and we do this whole thing where Jay Anthony is trying to prove that Babe Ruth was black. Hey, <laughs> and that hey. I should put him in the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It is hilarious. Just because, Bob. <laughs> Just because. You know, Babe, Babe moved like a brother would in the, in the 40s if we could. In the 20s, I should say. <laughs> and, and real talk. Babe Ruth's affinity for Negro League players likely cost him an opportunity to manage the New York Yankees. The Yankees were not enthralled with his closeness 
and the respect that he had for black players. They didn't like that at all. No, because Roof was barnstorming with these guys. He was too close to them. And, and so it likely cost him an opportunity to manage the Yankees. That's crazy. You can't make this stuff up. He was too close to him because, damn it, he was one of us. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, thank you so much, brother. I truly, truly appreciate you. Please, a- anything that we could do for the Negro League Baseball Museum, please let us know. Uh, I'm going to give you my information, anything, anything in this world, man. I-, I appreciate your presence. I appreciate what you do to keep the history going and to enlighten kids and adults alike of, uh, of this country's history. Yeah, no, man, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. The Full Goal with Jason Goff. Connect with the show 24-7 on the Full Goal voicemail line. Hit us up at 773-359-3103. That's 773-359-3103. It is the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff. I'm Chris Tannehill. I am the moderator of the phone call segment. That's what I want to be known for. Put it on, my, <laughs> um, um, put it on the resume, put it on the business card, put it on everything. So it's been a while since we checked in with our people, Jay, and uh, we've got the first caller out of the shoot here. Uh, just wants to give you uh, the old pat on the back for some good advice. Jim. You've given a lot of us many good av- advice over the years, but uh, this one from 708 has a little bit of the same. Jason, Dennis from Elgin might remember my uh, call many weeks ago being a disgruntled Bears fan, just saying, who can I root for? And you gave some sage advice. You said the Bengals. And ever since you said that, I've been looking at the Bengals and really appreciating what that team has done. (laughs) You might recall from that earlier voicemail saying, I don't want to be a Chiefs fan. And what did my bangles do? I said my bangles. <laughs> Thanks to you, Jason. They just knocked them off and they're going to go to the Super Bowl. So this might be the kiss of death and they're going to get smoked in two weeks. Of course. But I've just enjoyed playoff football with rooting for a team that you told me to go ahead and adopt as my AFC team. Thank you so much. You know, what's funny when you had that confusion about the, uh, you know, time zone difference and everything, not realizing that the football games all start at the same time for the whole nation, but we'll forgive that. You gave the sage advice. Jamar Chase, he had some key blocks and that's what I love. Like, he didn't even have to sell out being the best receiver in the game. He he made the big plays doing the little things. So, there's a whole lot to enjoy with this. And I just want to thank you for giving me that good advice. And you know, I have this good feeling now as a Bengals fan. Thank you so much. Dennis and Elgin, that's what I'm here for, bro. Like, you know, I know it's 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 fun and you know uh, hijinks and frivolity here on this podcast, but every once in a while, I steer you guys in the right direction. And the Cincinnati Bengals were a pick that I just pulled out of my ass, and I'm happy that it worked out for everybody. No, seriously though, I'm picking the Bengals to win the Super Bowl. So, hey man, Joe Burrow and the boys, I'm gonna ride with them till the very end. Uh, Sam Hubbard, I guess, uh, said that they were going to win this game for Harambe who got killed in the Cincinnati Zoo uh, a few years back. So the gorilla. See, yeah, yeah, the gorilla. Good to see uh good to see Sam Sam is in the the right headspace heading into uh, his his time in LA. But apparently the inclement weather has put Zach Taylor in his practice uh uh habits, you know, they've thrown a little monkey wrench into those because uh they have an outdoor facility, so I guess they're using the Cincinnati Bearcats, Luke Fickle spot. Uh but yeah, yeah, get those boys to LA. 
you know, keep him inside the hotel. Can't have a Genie Rob incident. Uh, and then, you know, I think Joe Burrow and the boys might pull a big upset uh, for Super Bowl 56. But you're welcome, Dennis and Elgin. What else we got, Tanny? Uh, we got to another Bears call here. And, you know, the Bears have been filling out their coaching staff this week. They hired Chris Morgan to coach their O-line. Alan Williams will be the D.C. Dave Borgazzi, how you doing? I'm the Borgazzi. Hey, how you uh, But this Bears caller is kind of just going through what a lot of Bears fans, I think, are going through right now. Just trying to figure out and parse through all the information and, and see how we feel about the Matt Eberflus hire about a week after the press conference here. Hey, this is Eric Cohen from Alabama. I want to talk about the Bears head coaching hire. Um, Super excited to be running it back with Ryan and Matt. I mean, honestly, I can't even work myself up to be outraged or or happy in any way. It's just everything about the process has led me to be incredibly skeptical and underwhelmed. And it's not just the all of the second half leads that the Colts gave up this year, but because we can't be confident in the process that led to this decision. They made they named Eberflus the finalist before polls was even hired. He was the first person polled interviewed. Given the Bears' history, how do we have any confidence that this wasn't just another George and Ted decision being forced on a new GM? I mean, thirty-five years old, so I don't have a living memory of this organization being confident. So I can't expect anything really other than the worst. Um, yeah, it's just, man, there's, uh, uh, I don't know what to think, which I guess is pretty, pretty standard for this team. Oh, man. You, you hate when they hit that little roadblock there where they're, they're searching and grasping for hope like a life raft out there. And 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 and, and much like Titanic, a, a rotten woman is floating away on a raft as you sink to your, oh, wait a minute. My bad. I, I kind of. I kind of made that a little bit too much dramatic, too dramatic for your taste. No, nah, man. Yeah, uh, listen, it, you hope they got it right. Uh, I, I I like the Luke Getze pick from talking to James Jones and some other people around the NFL. Um, having three guys in positions that have not done those jobs before sometimes is a little, little frightening, but this is all about number one. This is all about Justin Fields. In the next couple of years, if Justin Fields can get to the point where he is a top-tier quarterback or one of the better young quarterbacks in the league, then the hope is free from there on out. If we find out next year that this ain't about Matt Nagy and ain't about, you know, uh, you know, uh, my man, man, Willie Beam, a.k.a. Bill Lazor, that Justin Fields just ain't no damn good, then none of this matters. And we'll be doing this all over again in about three or four years anyway. So, you know, there it is. I, I know this. <laughs> if they want, Bears can go out and see if Byron Leftwich wants to come just hang out for a little bit. Because apparently, apparently, the top two coaching candidates in this cycle, both brothers, are going to go without getting a gig. As we are taping here tonight, the Jacksonville Jaguars have gone with Doug Peterson. Hey, how about sh- that? How about Doug Peterson? The reports came out. Doug Peterson doesn't even like the Jaguars at all. <laughs> the report said they, you know, he doesn't like the front office structure or whatever. And he was kind of lukewarm. Was was one of the quotes I saw about him being the Jaguars head coach. Welcome on, welcome on. Yeah, 
it's, it's like driving to somebody's crib to break up with them and they propose to you. You know what I'm saying? Like, ah, oh, damn, I gotta say yes now. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's Doug Peterson's like, oh Lord, please just let's just let's just get this, you know, thank you for having me email over with. He's typing it or whatever. All of a sudden he sees the email blast come through his phone. It's got the Jacksonville Jaguars letterhead on it. It's got whatever their four and thirteen record predicted is gonna be for next year on it. Like Trevor Lawrence is already like sad and hurt. And Doug Peterson's like, oh honey, we gotta go live in Jacksonville. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go live in a town that was built in like seven days <laughs> in the middle of Florida. <laughs> oh, listen, Doug Peterson, shout out to you. you, you you've gone now from Philadelphia and Howie Roseman to Trent Balky and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Fam, just go coach basketball. <laughs> just, just, just try to pick up being a hitting, hitting instructor or a pitching coach. Like, try a whole different sport because that man can't catch a break. That man won a Super Bowl in Philadelphia, wanted his ass out there quicker than, 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 than you know, Fly Eagles Fly could be sung. And then he says to everybody that can be listening, hey, I really don't think I want this gig. But, you know, you got to go out on the circuit. That's the thing, though. That's the thing. Don't be volunteering for stuff that you don't want. You, you, you put yourself in a position where you sat down with somebody who's going to offer you a job, and damn it, they offered you the job. So enjoy Trevor Lawrence, and watch Doug Peterson mess around win a Super Bowl in two or three years because of how stupid the NFL is. But yeah, if you are a brother this cycle, and or <laughs> many cycles before that, to be honest with you, hey, Patrick Graham, <laughs> all the black coaches in the NFL are just looking at you like, all right, brother, what you got? <laughs> You, you got to get hired somewhere, right? Like, the, who who doesn't have a, a coach right now? The Saints and the Vikings, right? Yeah, Vikings. How about that? The, the Vikings thing. Uh, Jim Harbaugh not impressed with the uh, survival <laughs> to the North, apparently. Either that or he just he prefers money. Uh, it's nothing like talking to a person for nine hours and be like, you know what? There's nothing here for us. <laughs> Why did you talk to me for the whole day? Dude, I've never understood these dudes sitting down for seven, eight, nine-hour interviews. What? Like, I, if, if an interview runs longer than I can, like, binge a series, then I don't need to be here that long. Like, what, how many strength coaches can you bring up? And how many playbook, you know, modifications can you bring up in the course of nine hours? And then t- to have to sit down with someone for nine hours and them not even offer you the gig? Yeah. All right. I saw one of the reports say that, you know, in, in the second interview with Harbaugh, the Vikings were kind of just like, hey, okay, so what's your plan? He's <laughs> like, hey, I'm Jim Harbaugh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little crazy. You'll win. But, you know, we'll get along for a couple of years. Uh, the Vikings, by the way, they did wind up with Kevin O'Connell. So Kevin O'Connell is going to be there. Kevin O'Connell. Yes, of course. The, fa- the famous. Uh, no, the famous <laughs> offensive O'Connells, apparently. Yes. Please, uh, Lord, let him be an offensive coordinator. <laughs> so you, so you have the Dolphins, Saints, and Texans still without a, a, a coach. So. Oh, a, a, a Dolphins team who's hiring practices, eh, shall we say, are a little, you know, a little in question right now. A Saints team who Sean Payton was like, so you mean to tell me those are my quarterbacks in this league? I'm out. And, and, and the Texans, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, <laughs> who watched Texans football this year? And if you say you did, you're a damn liar or a degenerate gambler. And if you're the latter, then we appreciate you because shout out to D- FanDuel. But no, seriously, man, like, 
Who wants those gigs? Hey, Dolphins throwing around that money, though. <laughs> <laughs> 100K. Hey, if you black and ready to lose, you can get $100,000 every time you go out there with a subpar black effort that we're expecting. Like, that's all they're on. They're like, hey, man, hey, who's the, uh, who's the hot new black so we can make sure that we pay him to lose <laughs> and, and make sure we doom any chance of him getting a second job? <laughs> Steven Ross is out here doing all of the NFL's work, by the way. He's like, hey, let's make sure we keep them down and also pay them to be kept down so it won't seem like discrimination. There it is. Ready? Break. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's all I can do now, Teddy and Jesse, is laugh at this thing because these dudes, like, it's not even hidden anymore. You got, like, the whitest of the white analysts who have never spoken out against the NFL. Like, yeah, man, this is kind of crazy what they're doing to (laughs) y'all. Like, like, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know what to say. It, it breaks your heart, man, watching Brian Flores go on the national TV circuit and, and dude. See, see the things that he's saying, you know, a, a, a Brownsville dude, all, you know, get a chance to maybe coach his hometown team and just, you know, does the best he can in Miami and and, and what, you know. And this is what know? you get out of it. This exactly. is what you get for and the And the craziest part is that man's going to have to be as public and as visible for as long as he can be. Because there are 32 billionaires who are watching him, and he better not jaywalk. He better, you know what I'm saying? He, he better, he better, no bill better be paid late. Like it, it, hell is coming to breakfast for this man the next misstep that he takes. And by the way, sh- the NFL sham of an, an investigation that took approximately, somebody said like 81 minutes. <laughs> this man has a hundred years worth of evidence <laughs> that that black coaches kind of have gotten, you know, uh, mistreated, so to speak, in the NFL. That it took them, uh, you know, a- an episode of Ozark to come back and be like, "Nah, ain't no merit to this claim. Move your ass on." Like, and then, and then you can tell with how forcefully these organizations are coming out. Everybody's been told to hold the line. Everybody, because some of these things that they have said about some of the people involved, people in NFL circles know to be true. And I'm just going to leave it at that. There are certain people who are speaking out with a lot of force, a lot of veracity, a lot of aggression that we know is true about you. It's been whispered about you for years, but this is what it is. When you've got to hold the line, it's 32 billion, well, 31 billionaires, you know, the Green Bay Packers, their weird situation where they don't have an owner. By the way, grow up. You know what I'm saying? Like this whole thing. Oh, I got a, I got a certificate. I'm a, I'm an owner of the Packers. You're an owner of foolishness is what you are. Okay. If you think you can go anywhere and make any decision as a Green Bay Packer owner, because you, you know, you, 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 you're Ed from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin with a certificate that you own the Packers. All right, fam, that and 250 gets you on the bus. But for the 31 billionaires out there, this is it. Nothing will change until ownership groups get investigated and start to lose their rights to these teams. That's as simple as that. And if Jerry Richardson can get kicked to the side for poor workplace conditions, if Dan Snyder can be under constant heat, especially with this whack-ass name that he got for this football team now. But this man, he's gotten to the point now where he doesn't have to speak in anything other than a press release or at a podium with no questions. So you've got 31 owners now who, who are forced to face no consequences face to force uh no real subpoena power to be honest with you and then on top of it a class action so who else gonna jump in 
you got a bunch of players who are oddly quiet right now as Brian Flores is out there swimming for his life. You know why? Because they've been all told to shut your ass up too. So this is it at play. Like we're watching this real time happen. This isn't the middle of the year where we're talking about, man, there's only a couple of black coaches. The two top candidates for coaching jobs this year with three jobs left and six filled already have not even been offered a gig yet. Just think about that. Not even offered a gig yet. And don't, don't come at me with the Trent Balky stuff either. Trent Balky has, has, has now, what, ruined a couple of organizations? If I'm a black coach, and especially if I'm Byron Leftwich, who has put up some good numbers before Tom Brady too, by the way, Jameis Winston threw for 5,000 yards. I knew he threw 30 touch, 30 interceptions, but he threw for damn near 5,000 yards as a Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback before Tom Brady got there. But you mean to tell me guys who know already that the eyes and the spotlight is going to be on them? I don't want to work with somebody I know is mediocre or incompetent. I want to work with my guy. And that's why he brought up Adrian Wilson of the Cardinals. So yeah, I wouldn't take the gig either because I don't know if I'm going to you know, I don't know if I'm going to get a second one. And I damn sure ain't going to leave it in your hands. So, yeah, Byron Leftwich, kudos to you. Brian Flores, kudos to you. At some point, at some point, and I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, but at some point, the NFL is going to have to, uh, they have to pay the price for what they've done. And now what they're doing, which is not really hiding, but it's in plain sight. And uh, Leftwich had... Uh... Jameis before the LASIK surgery, too. So. Yeah, that's true. Right, right, right. When he was <laughs> eating W's. Yeah. <laughs> Hell of a job right there. Yeah. Good job by you, Byron, for even keeping a job through the Jameis Winston era. <laughs> so finally here uh, now, this is this happens to be the last call, and it happens to be Q, but it is not the last call with Q, okay? Oh, of so course, let's, of let's course. get out of the way here. Yeah. I got a question for you, sir. <laughs> As you might recall, I was a huge Jimmy Butler fan. But when they traded Jimmy, I understood the move, and I was okay with it because I love Zach Levine. Been a huge Zach Levine fan. I never advocated for him to get traded. But now it seems, and even before the back-to-back game winners by DeMar, it seems that DeMar has become the favorite son of Chicago and supplanted Zach, even though we all know Zach's the best player on the team, right? The next that Zach wasn't there and DeMar was the number one option, he doesn't play as well as when the threat of Zach is on the floor with them. So even before the game winners, that was happening. Why is it? Is it because Marga Rosen is a free agent that chose Chicago versus Vooch and Zach who were traded here? I'm just trying to figure it out. I, I love DeMar. Don't get me wrong. I just, I don't get the disrespect that Zach is getting. But, you know, out of sight, out of mind sometimes. He's missed a lot of time, right? And then secondly, on the Valentine's Day thing. And this is how I knew Reggie was the one for me. <laughs> Reggie wouldn't have me spending any obscene money any obscene money in fact reggie's birthday is the week before valentine's day so she always lets me combo it because here's what you got to sell and, and hopefully she's not listening to this but this is how you sell her look we are engaged now this is a we thing not a me thing right we got to build this nest we got to build this egg together listen we to this fucking guy on you know jenny's at Alinea or something like let's just get the craze case and it's cool all right love you bro bye yeah, that's the yeah. You should laugh your ass off the pod with that call at the end of there. He, he he couldn't even he couldn't even land he couldn't even stick the landing. He knew at the end he was like, all right, I'm bullshitting a little bit. Yeah, no, yeah. Thank you very much for your advice, Q. But no, no, 
no, and no. <laughs> there, are, there are reasons and circumstances that I will be going all out for this, our very first Valentine's Day spent together. Uh, the engagement is cool. Yeah, you know, I proposed and did all that, got down on one knee. But yeah, certain certain days are still, you know, fun to, uh, to show people that you care about them, right? It's like... Uh, <laughs> I heard uh, somebody mention 420. It's like, hey, why why do weed smokers smoke weed on 420 and make a big deal out of this? (laughs) Because I heard somebody say, hey, I love weed every day. I just love it more on this day. (laughs) And that's that's what it is. I love it every single day. But on Valentine's Day, eh, I love it a little bit more. So there it is. I'm sorry for... Comparing my lady to weed just now, but you know, y'all get it. Y'all get it. <laughs> we all got relationships in life, whether it be with drugs or your significant other or the combo platter, which happens quite often as well. All right. I hope that's all the calls that we have here on this voicemail opportunity. Uh, as always, man, Tanny, you know, the, these are our peeps. They, they, uh, I won't say they never let us down, but they are letting us down less and less as we go further in this pod. It's the full go, that's all the time we have for episode 60 of The Full Go. We will return Sunday following Bulls 76ers, Joel Embiid, Nikola Vucevic, and Zach's back. His actual back. Next week, I'll be out in L.A. on Radio Row ahead of the Super Bowl. Looking forward to bringing you a lot of fun conversations with a lot of great guests that we've got lined up. Don't forget, as always, you can hit us up on the Full Goal voicemail line, 773-359-3103. That's 773-359-3103. Thank you so much to Bob Kendrick for joining the show. And in case you missed it and are in the Kansas City area, the Negro League Baseball Museum is free for the entire month of February because of a donation from the Kansas City Royals. The NLBM just yesterday was named an official stop on the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. So that is outstanding, especially here in the month of February, better known as Black History Month. We got to say thank you, as always, to our producers, Steve Cerruti, Chris Tannehill, and Jesse Lopez. For the boys, I am Jason Goff, thanking you for listening, downloading, sharing, subscribing, all the things that you do, rating and reviewing this thing. We appreciate you hanging out with this pod. It is the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff, brought to you by The Ringer. And of course, Spotify is the gang. We leave you with this, as always. Take care of each other and make sure you are safe out there. My dad.